Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from Matthew 6, 1 through 6, and then 6, 16 through 18. This is the word of God. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And now skipping down to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning humbled by your word, Lord. It is an amazing word that you give to us. This morning, I pray, Lord, that you would just help us to empty ourselves of ourselves and fill it with your Holy Spirit, that you may speak your words to us, that we may be uplifted and convicted. In your name I pray. Amen. Sorry, I have to move that. Otherwise, I will be tripping on it. I like to walk a little. So I grew up in a little town, or actually a city, called Delaware, Ohio. For those of you that don't know where it's at, that's okay. Nobody really knows where it's at. It's a very small city, just north of Columbus. But we had a couple pretty big claims to fame in Delaware, Ohio. One, we were the birthplace of our 19th president. If you don't know who that is, that is Rutherford B. Hayes. I know he did lots of great things. I'm not sure what they are, but I'm sure they were great. We also have something called the Little Brown Jug. Now, for those of you that like harness racing, it is the third race of the Triple Crown. All right? For those of you that don't know what harness racing is, don't worry, you're not missing much. All right? It's, it's horse racing, you're behind, you're in a cart. It's different. But our last crane to frame is actually a man. His name is Leroy Jenkins. Some of you may recognize that name. He was one of the first big televangelists in the 60s. So in the 60s, he started a big tent revival that got put on TV, and he became the man. Everybody loved him. And so as he was traveling through these big tent revivals, he did one in this small town of Delaware, Ohio. And when he was there, he fell sick. So he went out, and he pulled water from a well, And when he drank the water, he was magically healed. So he decided to to build a cathedral there, of course. 
the Healing Waters Cathedral in Delaware, Ohio, and he proceeded for the next 30 years to bring people in and heal them with his ministry. Now, it was interesting. He was known for a couple, couple things. One, he sang Sinatra's song, My Way, as God's Way. He would start every service that way, God's Way. Sounds all right, right? But then he would also, a little bit later, say, the Bible says if they slap you, turn the other cheek. Now let me give you my version of it. Leroy Jenkins 1.1, thou shalt not hit me, because if you do, I'm going to hit you back. And then he would proceed to go and heal people. Now the reason I tell you this story and talk about Leroy Jenkins is that he started with the right motive. He started bringing people to the Lord. He very quickly found fame in this, and he very quickly changed his motives from the Lord. Let me give you another example. Sports. I think many of you watched football games last weekend, right? We're preparing for the Super Bowl. At the end of a football game, players used to always say what? Hey, we're going to Disneyland, right? We won, we're going to Disneyland. Now, they say, I thank God. I thank God for giving me these gifts. I'm awesome. I'm a, and it's interesting. God is thanked in the first term, in the first sentence, and then it's I, the rest of the interview. Have you noticed that? Do they really care about God? Are they really giving glory to God? Thank you for these gifts? Maybe. Some might be. But I would say the majority are not. They're doing it because that's the respectable thing to do. That's the right thing to do. Motive matters. Why we're doing things, it matters. Now, outcomes can be the same. You can have terrible motives and you can have good outcomes. If you're an athlete, I can want to win so bad that it looks like winning. If I'm an athlete, I could be a team player and I could win in the same way. One motive is my team, one motive is me. If I'm working at school, I can have the motive, I want to be the best, and it can look really good. Or I can have the motive, I want to learn. The outcomes are the same, but the motives are different. Even in our work in the church, whether it's praying, whether it's giving, our motives matter. We may do the right thing, we may give the right things, but if it's not for the Lord, our rewards look very different. In our passage today, we're going to be talking about this. Motives matter. Now, let's take stock of where we're at in the Sermon on the Mount. We just finished chapter 5, which is a chapter about the law in our heart. Inwardly, how should we act? What should it feel like? Now, we're going to move to a part that's practical. We're going to go to our outward acts of righteousness. And how do we act in those acts of righteousness? Now, when we talk about this, and when we see this, this does not mean that we shouldn't be doing acts of righteousness. And I want to say that up front. The idea here is, what is our motives for those acts of righteousness? All right, don't get into your head as we start and go through this, that I shouldn't have to do these. That's not what we're saying here. What we're saying here is, why do I go about doing these? Our first verse introduces the whole section. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, reward is important. Reward is important. 
throughout all of scripture, especially in Jesus' teaching, there is reward for everyone. There is reward if we do the things of the Lord. There is reward if we don't. That reward is punishment, but it's still a reward. There is reward for everything. And God gives us the reward that we ask for. Now think about that for a second, because it's kind of scary. It's scary to me as I studied this. God gives us the reward we ask for. If I ask for the praise of men, if I ask for people to look at me and I strive for that, guess what? God gives that to me. He says, go ahead. It's all yours. Take all the glory. If I have the motive of God, if I have the motive of his glory, he also gives me a reward, a greater reward, his reward. He will reward me. So reward is important and it matters whose reward we're going to get and how we're going to get it. Carson says this, righteous conduct in the kingdom norms must be visible so that God may be glorified, yet it must never be visible in order to win human acclaim. Better by far is to hide any righteous deed that, we may, that may lead to ostentation. To trade the goal of pleasing the Father for the trivial and idolatrous goal of pleasing man will never do. Kingdom living is glory in God and to point to him in everything we do, not pointing at ourselves. Now you're going to see a logical structure. We're going to talk about three different pillars of piety. Now in Jewish culture, there's three pillars that we see that are outward acts to others. Almsgiving, or giving to the needy, prayer, and then fasting. And in each one of these, as Christ walks through them in this sermon, we're going to see there's, this is what the hypocrites do, don't do that. We're going to see, do it instead this way, and it's always going to end with, the Father who sees in secret will reward you in secret. So that's what it's going to look like. So let's dive into almsgiving. Verse 2 says, Thus when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets, that they may be praised by other. Truly, I say to you, they have rejected their reward, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so, you, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now it's okay to turn around and look. When somebody plays a saxophone in the back of the uh, auditorium here, are you going to turn around and look? Of course, right? What is the biggest fear in society today? FOMO, right? Fear of missing out. What is that going on? I got to know what's going on there. I can't believe they were just playing a saxophone in the back. Now, why did we just do that? It's simple. When somebody toots their own horn, are you going to turn around and look? I did, and I'm going to. That's the point. When they're tooting their own horn, they want to be seen. All right, let's talk about almsgiving. Almsgiving is charitable giving. Now, let me just explain it quickly. Almsgiving is not tithing. Do not get the two confused. Tithing is kind of a tax. We're expected to give this 10% back to the temple. Almsgiving is this idea of I'm going to give out of my excess. I've been given a lot by the Lord so I can give back 
to the Lord. All right, so that's what we're talking about. And the hypocrites here announced their almsgiving to everyone. How it says by blowing a trumpet. Now, historically, there was no trumpet blowing probably when they do this. This is probably more of just like we're saying, tooting your own horn, right? They toot their own horn. They make sure everybody can see what is going on so that they don't miss out. So they let them know. That's the way of the hypocrite. Now, we're going to hear about these hypocrites a lot. So let's make sure we understand what a hypocrite is. Hypocrite is a Greek actor, right? The word hypocrite started, it was just an actor. Somebody that would go up on stage and play a part. By the first century, the definition had changed slightly. There's two types of hypocrite. One is what we would call a con man, who fools everyone around them, but they really know their motives at the end of the day is them. The second one is the most dangerous one. That's somebody who's fooled themselves into thinking that they're doing good. They're delusional, right? I'm doing this for this reason, but I'm really not. And they don't know it. They fooled themselves. The Pharisees that Jesus is talking about and going against in this passage is doing this. They're the hypocrites. When they go out and they're giving to the needy, they're taking their saxophone, they're blowing it very loud to make sure everybody knows they're coming so that everybody comes and gives them praise, right? They believe what they're doing is for God. It's for God's glory. But at the same time, they don't understand that they take all glory away from God because they want themselves to be glorified. That's what we're not supposed to do. When you go out and when you give, you're supposed to do it in a way that your right hand, this one, doesn't know what your left hand is doing. Now let's talk about that for a second. Your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing? That's silly. Don't your hands always know what each one's doing? Aren't they connected to the same body? Why would we ever have this example of make sure your right hand doesn't know what your left hand is doing? That just makes zero sense to me, right? That always happens. Now, this can be looked at in a couple different ways. One is this way of your right hand and left hand while you're patting yourself on the back, right? Your right hand and left hand are congratulating ourselves. So don't do it in a way that you congratulate yourself. The other way you can look at this that I like is that when you do something with your right hand, do it so quickly that your left hand forgets it there, right? Forget what you've done so quickly that you can't pat yourself on the back or know what your two hands are doing. It's interesting in my own life, when I do something good, if I forget about it, I don't worry about it. But if I don't, I start sitting there going, hmm, I just made breakfast this morning and my wife never said thank you. What is the matter with her? I just worked for an hour on that breakfast and it was good. She enjoyed it and she didn't say thank you to me. What is the matter with her? Well, why? Because in our human nature, we want to be recognized for what we do. It's who we are. Who's the most important person to myself? Myself, of course. So recognize me for what I do when I work hard. The idea here is that forget it so quickly that you can't point back to yourself. I make that breakfast. I move on to my day. I don't give myself a chance to think about it. I don't give anyone else a chance to think about it. I just move on because I'm doing it for something else, something bigger than me. So when we give, when we give to others, not if, when, when we give to others, we do it in a way that is not for us, 
but it's for the Lord. We quickly forget about what we've done. And guess what? The Lord who sees this, he sees everything. He will reward you. Let's look at prayer. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Let me start with a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones on prayer. When a man is speaking to God, he is at his very acme. It is the highest activity of the human soul, and therefore it is at the same time the ultimate test of a man's true spiritual condition. You will find that the outstanding characteristic of all the most saintly people the world has ever known has been that they have not only spent much time in private prayer, but have also delighted in it. We cannot read the life of any saint without finding that, it ha that that has been true of him. The more saintly the person, the more time such a person spends in conversation with God. Thus, it is vital in all important matter. And surely, there is a greater need for guidance at this point than at any other. I read that quote and it really convicts me. Is prayer that important to me? And how do I pray? Now, we're going to come back and look at the Lord's Prayer at the end, but let's talk about how we pray and our motives for prayer. And let's talk about public prayer. I first want to say very clearly, this does not say you should not pray in public. You just have to do it in the right way. Similar to the trumpet, we don't need to stand up and be loud and point at ourselves. Now, I want to take an example here. Standing up is important if we want to be heard. Uh, when I teach junior high and we do our introductions, I have people stand up and talk about themselves. Why do I have them stand up? Because automatically we're drawn to the person standing up as important, right? We quiet down just a little bit more so we can hear what they have to say. So when somebody stands up and prays or is on the street corner praying, the idea is they are calling all attention to themselves when they publicly pray. Are they wrong in praying? No. Not at all. But their motive for praying is so that they can be seen by others. The hypocrites love to show off. Now, can we always see this when people are praying? No. No. Some prayers may look perfectly fine and normal, but only you are going to know the motivation in your heart when you pray. Now, let's talk quickly about a special time that we have. We have a Lord's Supper service and we have an open time where we ask men to stand and lead us in corporate worship. Is that wrong? Absolutely not. We are supposed to publicly pray. We're supposed to pray in front of others. And we're supposed to do it in a way glorifying to God. Now, this scripture can be used in two different ways if you want to get out of this. All right, so men, I'm telling you now, don't use either way these ways because we know. The first one is this and the one I fall into. When I first came to LBC years ago and was introduced to this open service, I had a man come forward and say, hey, you need to pray in the service. We would love to have you pray. I said, all right, I'll pray. So I prayed, and I remember afterwards people coming up to me saying, good prayer. And I said, yeah, it was. I like that prayer. <laughs> You're right. That was a good prayer. I did good, didn't I? People came to the Lord, and I got it in my head that it was good to praise because guess what? Everybody comes up to you afterwards and says, good job. 
Isn't that great? And I fooled myself into thinking I was worshiping the Lord when the whole time I was doing it for after that service, somebody come up and tell me good job and find worth in other people. Can't do that. Now, we also have the excuse of the exact opposite. I'm not going to pray because I don't want people to think I'm doing it for myself. I'm going to hide. I shouldn't have to pray in front of others. No, that's not true either. You do need to pray publicly. We do encourage you to stand and pray and don't use this verse as a scapegoat. It's not saying you can't pray publicly. You can. And you can do it in the right way. How do we do that? We forget about everyone in this room and we pray to the Lord. What I've learned is that when I pray, it doesn't matter if you're watching me. It doesn't matter if I'm by myself. This is time for the Lord and I to speak to each other. It's time for me to come before him and to commune with him. And do you know what? If I'm communing with him the right way, it's going to affect everyone around me as well. In a good way. But it doesn't matter because it's my time with the Lord. So when we pray publicly... Make sure it's between you and the Lord. Now let's take a step back and go to private prayer. It says lock yourself in a broom closet, basically, right? Well, most likely these houses didn't have broom closets. The idea here is that you need to get away by yourself when you pray. Do you do this? This is hard. In society today, do you get away so that you can pray? You say, well, yeah, I get away. You know, it's me and my phone and I go somewhere. Well, that's not getting away. You still have your phone. Can you get away to private prayer? Can you go to a place where you can truly focus on the Lord and talking with him? It's very important. Carson says this, the public versus private antithesis is a good test of one's motives. The person who prays more in public than in private reveals that he's less interested in God's approval than in human praise. No piety, but a reputation for piety is his concern. When we pray, do it for the Lord. When you pray, pray to the Lord. It is a time of rejuvenation for you and the Lord, no one else. Pray to the Lord. Let's move to fasting. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may, be, may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, for those of you who are saying, hey, you just skipped the Lord's Prayer? Seriously? Don't worry, I'm coming back to the Lord's Prayer. We'll have plenty of time on that. But fasting, let's look at this for a second. Now, for those of you who don't know what fasting, I'll tell you what my boys think fasting is. It's the time between dinner and breakfast. That is fasting. Or the time between my last meal and my next meal. That is fasting. That's actually not what fasting is. Fasting is when you give up something for a greater outcome. Right? It kind of sounds like investing, doesn't it? Right? I'm giving up something for a greater outcome. Now, fasting has become in vogue again. If you guys didn't know this, have you ever heard of intermittent fasting? It's all the rage, right? I don't eat a little bit, I can lose some weight, and I can get healthier all at the same time. It's back. So people know what fasting is. Now, fasting wasn't looked like that or didn't look like that 
in Jewish times, especially around the time we're talking about here. In the Old Testament, we're first introduced to fasting with Moses. He's waiting for the Ten Commandments. He fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, long time, right, to go without eating. Then we see it over and over again in many different ways. It's associated with a couple of different things. First, it's associated with mourning or grief, all right? So let's take a look at Esther. Esther's a great one. The king demands or declares that everyone's going to be killed. And as a response to that, the Jews all cry or in mourning and they fast. Fasting can also be for something that you're praying for, looking forward to. Again, Esther. Esther says, hey, I'm going to go into the king. If he doesn't put his scepter out to me, I'm going to be killed. Can you please pray for me and fast for three days that this goes well? So we see fasting in order to pray. And then we also see fasting as an act of worship or ceremonial worship, right? In the law, there's certain days people are supposed to fast. Now, as all good things that the Lord has for us, we twist those things, or the Pharisees twisted those things to Jesus's time. In Jesus's time, every Tuesday and Friday or Monday and Thursday, depending on whose accounts you believe, Pharisees would fast. And when they would fast, it would be announced. Now, the other two, while there's no actual trumpet playing for the fasting, there was a trumpet. The trumpet would play. People would know, hey, this period of time, we're going to be fasting. And you would look around and say, who's eating and who's not eating? And it would be literally uh, who you are and how important you are by how much you fasted and what it looked like when you were doing it. Now, we don't see this as much. We, as a congregation, probably don't fast that much. And it's kind of gone away from the fact that fasting in that time was an important thing to give up. Now for us, it may be something else. Times have changed. Fasting for them was so important because that time spent at a meal, probably hours a day, would now be spent in communion with the Lord. For us, this may look different. You've heard of things like social media fasts, right? Where I'm going to give up my Facebook and Instagram time and maybe pray. We've heard of video game fasting for our younger ones. We've heard of TV fasts. We've heard of screen fasts. Very rarely do we see actual food fasts anymore, but we have these different ones. But when we're doing this, this passage says, we need to do this the right way. Now, at the beginning of each summer, we do a small video game fast, and I'm not even going to call it a fast. We take video games away from our boys for a couple weeks so they learn how to play, right? You need to learn how to play. It's the summer. You've got tons of time. You go play outside. And what happens during those two weeks when they're not allowed to play video games? Well, the first three days looks just like the Pharisees. Oh, <laughs> can I have 10 minutes? Just 10 minutes. Let me play one game. And their faces are drawn, they're sad, and all they do is cry about their situation, right? But after about a week, things change. They say, oh, look, the sun does shine. I can go outside and I can play with my friends. I can ride my bikes. This is so much fun. I can't believe it. Now, they've seen throughout time that it's good to get away from things and replace them with others. And I think in fasting, it's the same thing for us. We need to understand what we can give up and when that will point us back to the Lord. Maybe it is food for a while. Maybe I give it up so that I can pray better. 
Maybe I focus on him. Maybe it's social media. Whatever it may be, when we give something up, make sure you're giving it up for the right motives. I'm giving it up to be closer to the Lord, not so I can walk around and everybody can see me sad. Okay? Now, of the three in rewarding, I think this one to me makes the sense, especially if it's food. I love my food. And if I'm going to give up my food, I don't want to be rewarded by any of you people. I want to be rewarded by God. This is important. All right? So make sure when you're fasting, you have the right motives. Now, let me wrap up on motivation quickly because I want to get to the Lord's Prayer. In all of our acts of righteousness, there's one question we need to ask. In all of our outward appearances, when we're doing something, there's one question you need to ask. Whether this is giving, this is praying, this is fasting, maybe it's working at the church, maybe it's working in a Sunday school. Regardless of what it is, why are you doing it? Who are you doing it for? If you ever answer that question with myself, you need to think again, are you doing the right things? Anytime you think about yourself in that way, am I doing the right things? Now we're all sinners and we all love ourselves. So we will all have that motive at some point in our lives. Let's not kid ourselves. But we need to check that motive when it comes to say, why am I truly doing this? Is this for me or is this for God? Now let's take a step back and let's look at the Lord's Prayer. Before we get there, I want to say one thing. This section that we're studying today is for those that have been saved. Jesus is not talking to the unrepentant. He's specifically talking to those who have been saved. Your motivations when you're saved matter. When you pray, it matters Praying like the Lord's Prayer is only for those that are saved. If you don't know the Lord, I want to plead with you today that now is the time. We're going to see our Heavenly Father as we pray. He can be your Father too. He loves everyone and He wants you to be part of your family. I would say today, don't wait. Confess your sin. Believe in Jesus. Become part of this family so that you can pray with us. Please. Now let's dive into the Lord's Prayer. Verse 7 says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Now this heap up empty phrases, I don't really like that translation. There's another translation that says, babbling like pagans. I kind of like that one a little bit more, right? Don't babble when you pray, right? Don't keep going on and on and on with nothing. Makes no sense. Spurgeon says this, to repeat a form of prayer a very large number of times has always seemed to the ignorantly religious to be praiseworthy, but assuredly it is not. It is a mere exercise of memory and of the organs of noisemaking, and it is absurd to imagine that such a parrot exercise can be pleasing to the living God. Think of that, parrot exercise. Do you know that parrots can pray? If you teach them long enough, they can babble the same words you do. Do you think it matters? Absolutely not. When you pray, don't be a parrot. I always love articles, and you probably read them, that start with this TLDR. Have you guys seen that before? Too long, didn't read. 
Basically, it's saying, hey, there's a whole lot of words coming at you that don't actually mean anything, but if you read this little summary, you can skip all of it. I always think of that when I'm praying. It's interesting. The Lord knows who I am. He knows what I need. I don't need to go through all this flowery speech and things like that. I can talk to him like my father. Now, it's been interesting as a father myself, my perspectives have changed as well. If my kids are talking to me, let's get to the point. We don't need to beat around the bush. You don't need to butter me up if you're going to ask for something. It just doesn't work that way. Just tell me what you want or tell me what you need or let's have a discussion. Why would we think God's different? Why would we think if we say all these wonderful words and have this flowery speech that he would love us more or he would do something for us than if we just talk to him normally? Talk to your father. Don't babble around. Don't say these things. He knows what you need, and he's going to give them to you because he's a loving father. Now let's dive into the Lord's Prayer itself. Our father, let's start with that. Now, when it says our father, a lot of you are going to sit back and go, Father, what do I think of for fathers? Uh, A lot of the examples I've seen this week and in the past when I've research this a lot of people say our father is actually not a good statement do you know that our earthly fathers are sinners and they've messed up royally and when we say our father many people say my dad wasn't that good why would i call god my dad that's why this second piece is so important our father in heaven we have a heavenly father who is absolutely perfect he has our best interest in mind He would never do something wrong, right? We hear, if your son asks for bread, who gives him a snake instead, right? Our heavenly father knows everything perfectly and gives things perfectly. So when we pray, our example of prayer is this. Our father who is in heaven, the perfect living God in heaven is my father. Doesn't that give you great perspective? This is not just Jesus that can say it. This is all of you that have believed in Jesus as your Savior. He is your heavenly Father, and he is perfect, and he's listening to you. You're not just another number. You are important, you are special, and God listens to you. Then we have three petitions. We have three of adoration, And then three for ourselves. Let's look at these. Hallowed be your name. Now, hallowed is not a term that we normally use. In fact, I don't think I've used it out loud ever, except if I'm saying the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed simply means this. Your name be revered above all. Hallowed be your name. Your name, may it be set aside from everything else and important. Now, of the whole Lord's Prayer, I feel like this is the piece that we miss the most in our culture. When I go to work, I have a lot of people at work that talk kind of crass, let's call it. Let's say every third or fourth word is probably not a word I would ever use. And throughout the years, I've worked with a lot of these guys for a lot of years. They understand that I don't use those words. But they understand I don't care if they use their words except for three. You don't use the Lord's name in vain and you don't say Jesus Christ all the time. I care about that. That's a problem. We have been desensitized as a whole to these words. 
you'll go out and every third person will be GD this, GD that. And I'm not going to go into those words. But using the Lord's name in vain and desensitizing ourselves to how special this name is, is what our culture has done. When we start the Lord's Prayer, we start it with respect for our God and our Father. Hallowed be your name. Be set aside. You are special. You are my God. You have created us. You deserve a special place, and that is exactly what I'm going to give you because you are above all. Now, when I pray with my kids or when we get ready to pray, I actually do it with your junior hires as well. I always start before we say and say, hey, when, do we, when we pray, who do we pray to? And they say, God. Now, what does God deserve? He deserves our respect. How do we respect him, right? We stay quiet. We close our eyes and we focus on the Lord when we pray. The Lord's name needs to be hallowed and set aside. We need to have respect for our Father when we pray. Your kingdom come. Now, we've been talking about kingdom life and we've been talking about life in this kingdom today. And there is an aspect where the kingdom has come, right? The kingdom has come through grace in Jesus that we can be saved and we're all part of this kingdom. But there's also this physical aspect that will be consummated someday. Someday we will have a kingdom on this earth and then they'll throw this earth away and get a better one. And we will have a physical kingdom that we can see. When we talk about your kingdom come, that's exactly what we're talking about. This kingdom that's coming on earth. If you look at the early church, what did they look forward to? Jesus coming back. This kingdom on earth. It was an important thing. And we kind of lose sight of that, right? We kind of say, eh, it'll come at some point. You know, there's a football game next week and I really want to watch it. Lord, could you maybe wait a week and then you can come back then? Uh, or maybe, you know, I've got this degree I've been wanting to get. Maybe I could finish my degree. I've got this vacation coming up and I've been waiting my whole life for this vacation. Lord, just wait a couple weeks. We put ourselves in front. No, your kingdom come. Lord, come be with us. Lord, reign in our lives. Lord, take over the earth, please. Your will be done. Now, the ultimate consummation is when God's will is enforced on this earth. Do you guys know that right now on this earth, there are billions of wills going on? In this room alone, there is lots of wills going on. There's my will, there's your will, there's my family's will, there's my friend's will. There's everybody wanting something from everything else. But there's only one will that truly matters. It's God's will. Now, this can be a very hard thing to say. Your will be done. Why? Because God's will isn't our will. It can be hard. God's will may mean that you have to go through a divorce. God's will may mean that you're going to be abused. God's will may mean that life doesn't look exactly how you want it. But it is for his will, for his glory. And there's something in it that you don't know. You may never learn that on this earth. You may never know why, but God is doing it to uplift. I always think of Joseph. And he says to his brothers, what you had meant for evil, God meant for good. So when you're saying your will be done, you're aligning yourself 
with God's will, knowing that his will is done and there will be joy and peace. Even though there's suffering, even though there's pain, even though it's hard. Do not skip over those words. Also, your will be done is not something where you step back and say, Lord, whatever will be, will be, I don't care. You know, you're God, whatever. Your will be done. Let me walk away. No, finding God's will is an active thing. Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The idea of this is that you search out God's will and you do it. Your will be done, let me go find it and let me do it. Let me align with it. Let me see what it is. Now let me say this, when God's will is done perfectly on this earth, we will have Revelation 21.4. He shall wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain for the former things have passed away. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Today it's perfect in heaven because there's a singular will. We want that same thing for this earth. Now let's move on to our three petitions of the Lord. The first is a physical petition. Give us this day our daily bread. Lord, please take care of us today. Now, in Jesus' time, daily bread was important. They couldn't go to their fridge. They couldn't go to the local 7-Eleven. They couldn't go grab groceries at King Supers. They had to go out each day and bring in their food, right? There was very little they can do. And the idea here is, Lord, take care of my physical needs today. We are slightly different, right? We can go to Costco once a month, get plenty of food, throw it in our fridge, and it's ready whenever we're ready. So we don't depend or have to depend on the Lord as much. Does this mean you don't go to Costco? Does this mean you don't store up food? No, that's not what I'm saying. So please don't take it that way. What I'm saying is that can you and do you ask for your daily dependence of physical needs from the Lord? Do you understand that regardless how you get those needs, the Lord is providing them for you? So give us our daily bread. Lord, take care of my physical needs. That's an okay thing to say. Now, we're not saying, Lord, give us food for today and the next 10 years. Lord, give me a couple million dollars. Lord, do this. No, Lord, take care of me physically, please. That's our first petition to the Lord. Second petition, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Now, debts here, very simple. It means sin. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us, right? Now, we're not talking about justification. Justification is a single point in time where you've given your life over to the Lord and I am now saved. We go back and you think of the great chasm, right, in this cross. Justification is you walking across that chasm, you're done. You are justified, you are before the Lord, and that does not change, all right? But there is this idea of how positionally am I with the Lord? Let's take a look at this in marriage or in friendship, right? If I and my wife are married, we're married, all right? But our relationship doesn't always look the same. Some days we wake up and say, I don't want to talk to you. We're not doing well right now. Some days I wake up and say, honey, you're the best thing that's ever happened to me. I love you so much. I'm so excited to have you. That's positional sanctification or justification between 
my wife and I? How do I positionally stand before her? Now, with the Lord, it's the same thing. You don't lose your salvation and then say, Lord, forgive me, and I get my salvation back. You're always saved. But when you sin, you move farther away. If I lie to my wife, she's not going to trust me next time, right? I wouldn't. If I lie multiple times to my wife, I keep pushing her farther away. Just like if I sin against the Lord, I'm going to push myself away from him. What did Adam and Eve do? They sinned, and then what did they do? Oh, Lord, I sinned. Sorry about that. No, they went and hid, right? I don't want him to know that I sinned. When we sin and we have sins building up, we push ourselves away from the Lord. Now, think about that again. We push ourselves away from the Lord. The Lord doesn't push away from us. We push away from him. So forgive us our sins. Lord, forgive us so we can be close to you. Remove all hindrance between you and me so that we can talk and help us to forgive others. You know, the verse 14 and 15 say, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive, neither will your heavenly father. Now, this doesn't mean that God's vindictive like we are. Sure, I'll be the first to admit, sometimes people trespass against me or sin against me, and I go, I'm not forgiving you for that. That's stupid. Why would I forgive you for that? Right? God would forgive them. But the idea here is that I need to be willing to forgive because of the great debt that has been forgiven. I'm sorry. Is there anything on this earth that can take away your eternal life? Is there anything on this earth that can hurt so bad that it's hell? God has forgiven hell. You deserved hell. Jesus Christ took it. You deserve hell. God forgave it. Is there seriously anything you can say somebody else can do to you that's worse than that? No. So forgive them. Help us to forgive them. Let's move on to the final, tem- final petition. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, let's take a second here. God doesn't tempt anyone. We cannot say that God tempts us. James 1.13 says that. God never tempts you. God will never have you sin. Who does? Well, Satan does. Our minds do. The earth does. Lots of things lead us into temptation. So when we pray in this, we're saying, Lord, help us avoid this temptation so that I don't get in trouble. And if I'm in temptation, deliver me from that temptation that I might not sin. Lord, protect me, please. Get me out of this. How can I get out of this? So when we see this, we're saying, Lord, you are wiser than me. I put my life in your hands. I know that I can't get out of this themselves. I've seen many where people say, hey, I outsmarted Satan this way. I didn't sin, so I'm smarter than Satan. Do you guys know that we're a lot dumber than Satan? He's smarter than all of us combined. And the only way you're gonna be delivered from him or from sin is from the Lord, working in your life through the Holy Spirit. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, three, uh, three petitions, like I said, three of adoration that sets our perspective for prayer. When you pray, have the right perspective. God is above all. 
God is coming back and someday his will will be done. We have nothing to worry about in the future. It's all taken care of. Three petitions for ourselves: our physical needs, our spiritual needs, and what you can call our moral needs. The Lord takes care of all of those needs in this prayer. So when we pray, make sure we do it in the proper way. We give respect to the Lord and then we have our needs. Now let me end with this. The point of praying, the point of everything we've gone over, charitable giving, fasting, the point is God's glory. Do you do everything for God's glory? Tim Keller says it this way, it's not the feeling that I have to or I feel required to, but the actual want and need to have God completely preeminent in my life above all things. Can you say that? I find myself thinking about this, recollecting on this and saying, Lord, this is hard. How do I put you first in everything? Because I love myself. It's bad. Forgive me. How do I put you first? And I keep coming back to these passages where it says, forget what you're doing. Focus on the Lord. Look to him first. Forget yourself. It doesn't matter. All that matters is his glory. Let's pray. Please stand with me. Father, we come before you today and we just thank you for your son, Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you that he died on the cross. Thank you that we can boldly enter the throne room as children. Not just as children, but children that you listen to. Children that you love. Children that you want to give everything wonderful to. Lord, we confess right now that we are beings that love ourselves more and more. And it's hard sometimes, Lord to give everything for your glory. But I pray, Lord, as we go out today, as we look at this passage, as we think about our motives, Lord, that you would make it that everything would be to your glory. In your name I pray.